Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast, and today on this special edition of a video podcast, I am at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Waxahachie, Texas, with Father Joseph, uh, Father James. So uh, it is so good to be here with you today. Well, welcome. Glad you're here, Scott. Yeah. Great to talk with you. Thank you. And so we're going to be talking in the podcast today about um, just the Catholic faith, the Catholic tradition, and a little bit about what that is and what that looks like today. So. I wanted to begin by just asking you if you could tell a little bit about just sort of the history of the Catholic Church, which I know is very long and detailed, but uh, sort of, I guess, the Cliff Notes version. The Cliff Notes version, well, Scott, you know, for all of us as Christians, I mean, we have a very rich history in Christ Jesus. And so for us as Catholics, we look at it and be able to say, well, Christ came to found his church. And he found this church, we say, for three reasons. One, teach to sanctify and to govern his people. And so when we look throughout the 2000 year history of the Catholic Church, we were able to see that there are so many wonderful examples and models of saints, where you're talking about the saints of old or modern saints like Saint Mother Teresa. You also can see the development of the doctrine to understand you know, what exactly did Christ leave us as a great treasure and a gift. And also to be able to see that Christ really does take care of his church in the moments of the cross and the moments of the resurrection. So it's a great history of just being able to witness what Christ did in the gospels of changing hearts and lives, inviting people to follow him. And some people did follow him and some of them said, you know what, I more want to admire you than follow you. And so to be able to stand on the shoulders of many great men and women of Christianity, just a wonderful thing and to recognize that hopefully we can be able to be firm foundations for those who come after us of modeling what it means to follow Christ. I mean, for me, that's what I think about the church. Like you said, it's a very uh, intricate history, and I don't know if we want to go into all the details of that, but for me, what's the great thing is to know that I'm not alone, that I'm with Christ, but also with his body, the church. Yeah, very good. Well, what are some things that sort of make the Catholic church distinct? What are some defining characteristics that, you know, if you were to say, you know, visit a church in Texas or a church in New York or a church in London mm -hmm. that would sort of be very similar? What, for me, I always look at what we say at the end of the creed. We proclaim every Sunday the Nicene Creed, which was formulated in the fourth century to combat the Arian heresy, which was uh, the heresy saying that um, Jesus Christ really isn't God. It's just mm -hmm. a human being that that God adopted and the church clarified and said no from the beginning is very clear that Jesus Christ is God made man born of the Virgin Mary but at the end of the creed it says you know I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church and what we as Catholics say those four qualities are the marks of the church so how do I know when I step into a Catholic church well there's a sense of unity of oneness you go anywhere throughout the world there is similar beliefs, not only in doctrine, but also in practices and liturgy. So you look at that as a defining characteristic. The notion of holiness, you know, that Christ has made his church holy. He has sanctified us by the blood on the cross. And so we look for that mark of holiness. I love the definition of holiness I heard at one point, is that holiness is when my will and God's will are one. So, of course, we as individual human beings are struggling to be able to conform more to the will of God. But we say that the church, as Christ's spotless bride, 
is one that is perfectly conformed and united to the will of God, leading all men to salvation. So you look for that mark, and of course, in the examples of the holy men and women that have come before us, we can be able to see the fruits of the Spirit at work. The other thing is Catholic. Now, some people may say, well, you're the Catholic Church, and so of course Catholic, but Catholic, lowercase c, means universal. Mm -hmm. So not only is the church universal in the sense that I can go in any continent and be able to experience the same liturgy and the same teachings, but it's also, it, it passes centuries. It's the same faith handed down, unadulterated amidst the changes of this world that we can hold on to that faith that Christ has given to us and entrusted to his church. And then the last thing is apostolic, that we can look and say that there's an apostolic succession, that the bishop of our diocese, Bishop Burns, and every single Catholic bishop, and of course we can think of our Holy Father, the Pope, that we say that there's an apostolic succession, that they can, they can have their lineage go all the way back to the first apostles. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I say, you know, what distinguishes the Catholic Church, I look for those four things. And I can say, well, there's a Catholic Church. Yeah, I think that makes very good sense. And uh, the idea of, of course, you know, uh, the apostolic succession and following this, um, Eusebius was one of the first church historians, mm -hmm. and he sort of is one of the first ones to work out apostolic succession from the churches, uh, I think in order in the 4th century AD to try to combat some of the churches that had come up that were not teaching the same gospel as everyone else. And he was saying, well, this church started over here. It wasn't started by an apostle. It wasn't started by a follower of an apostle. It wasn't started by anyone who had anything to do with the actual Catholic universal church. And um, so I think there's there's certainly a lot of comfort in knowing, you know, look, the churches that we have that are Catholic churches today have this very long history where uh, you can see how, okay, you know, this person uh, was put in charge here and then they started this church over here and this church over here. And as such as the church has grown, there's always a connection back to other churches. Nothing's just popping up out of nowhere. That's correct, and it's a wonderful thing of just belonging to a tradition that's even just larger than any oneself, and being a part of a larger family. And that's comforting, especially mm -hmm. when you look throughout Scripture, when God is always calling His people. You know, it's not just an individual, it's a people. And if He does call up as an individual, it's always for the sake of, of the larger people. The good of his for the good of those in his kingdom yeah and uh, I think there's also something I think very important to be said about the idea of it being communal mm -hmm. uh, we very clearly have a communal faith I mean the Christian faith has uh, has meant to be communal since God put Adam and Eve in the garden I mean he said essentially to them I put the two of you here build a community yeah you know and um, then you know of course you get uh, you know, even into you know, the time of Moses. And it's all about the community and the people coming together to go um, to the tabernacle or you know, eventually after the time of David and Solomon, people going to the temple. Mm -hmm. uh, but the temple is a communal place and people go there uh, to worship together. And I think there's something very sacred about the idea that as Christians, we're not alone in our walk with God. Yes. Uh, we are a community of believers and we are meant to worship in community. And the spiritual nourishment you get when you're in community reminds you that we're not out there in the world alone. 
Right, and that goes back to, you know, the fascinating thing about the history of the church is that through baptism, all of us belong to the body of Christ, as St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. And so, yeah, I'm not alone. As I tell the people in my congregation, we can have a great prayer life that's very personal, but no, no prayer life should be private. You know, even if it's individual personal prayer, which should be rich indeed, you know, we have to keep in mind that we are part of the whole body of Christ and that, you know, when one member rejoices, all the members rejoice with it. And when one member suffers, all the members suffer along too. We're in this together. And yeah. thankfully we have Christ as our head who can guide us. Yeah, very good. Um, well, let me ask you a few questions about sort of some uh, Catholic to Saint practices. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously um, uh, something that separates Catholicism from a lot of the Protestant denominations is the idea of confession. Uh, maybe you could speak to us a minute about just, you know, why, why do uh, Catholics go to confession and what's the spiritual significance of that? That's a great question. I personally love the sacrament of confession. I think I wouldn't be a priest without having that practice in my own life of going to confession, of confessing my sins and having the Lord forgive me. And I can understand, well, why is that necessary? You've been, you've been baptized. I always like to go back to what happened on Easter Sunday. <clears throat> because I always think that what Christ did on Easter Sunday has immense importance. I mean, because without Easter Sunday, as St. Paul says, our faith is in vain. And Christ really didn't rise from the dead. And all of these things that we believe that he has taught is in vain. Because the resurrection proves that he is truly God that he has saved us from our sins, that he has conquered sin and death. And so in John chapter 20, when he visits the apostles on the Easter Sunday night, and let's face it, they were terrified and hiding from the Jewish leadership at the time. But I also want to maybe say that they could have been afraid a little bit about our Lord. Because think about it, the women come back and say, he's alive. And then they're thinking to themselves, what? He did say that he was going to come back, and all of us practically abandoned him. And he's the leader. And what's he going to? What's he going to say? And then that's why you have those beautiful words where he says, "Peace be with you." When he walks into the room, and uh, you can just imagine the peace that they felt. But then he breathes on them, and as we know from Scripture, the only time God ever breathes on man besides this passage, is in Genesis, when he breathes life into Adam. And so he breathes on the apostles, and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Now I look at that and I say, all right, one of the first things Jesus did after he rose from the dead is to give the apostles the authority to forgive sins. Now, on a separate occasion, Matthew 28, you know, when he's about to ascend into heaven, he gives the great commission to go out and make disciples and baptize everybody. And of course, baptism does give the forgiveness of sins. It makes us children of God. But then there's another distinct act of him saying on Easter Sunday, that you have the authority to forgive sins. And it wasn't just to all the disciples. It was to the apostles. It was to the leaders of the, of the church. And so what confession is for Catholics is that after baptism, because all of us 
still need to work out salvation. Mm-hmm. St. Paul says in Romans, I do what I don't want to do, and I and I don't do what I ought to do. You know, he has that kind of wrestling within himself. You know, our Lord says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only him who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what the sacrament confession for us is, is that renewal and that restoration and grace when we have lost it due to sin. And it really is about coming to be for the Lord. And God gives us the grace to know our sins, not so we can focus on ourselves or our sins, but to focus on Him. And that He can say, you know what, I forgive you. I absolve you and I strengthen you to be able to become ever more a faithful follower of mine. So it's a beautiful, beautiful sacrament. I'll admit, it's not fun to go myself. I get a little hesitant. But it's wonderful to be able to unburden myself and to say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry, and to hear in a very tangible way the Lord's words of absolution and forgiveness. Yeah, I think uh, that's interesting that you bring up too, you know, you go. Uh, I think sometimes the thought is people have to go to the Catholic priest for confession, but the Catholic priests don't go to confession. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. Everything you do with the congregants are things that you yourselves practice. You know, St. Augustine says, now he's a bishop, I'm not a bishop, but you know, he says, you know, with you I'm a Christian and for you I'm a bishop. And it's the same thing with a priest. You know, with you I'm a Christian. I am in need of the Lord's saving grace just as much as everybody in the room. And then the office that I have as a priest that I've been entrusted with is really for the benefit of others. You think about it, the priest, I don't know if you all know this or not, but the priest cannot forgive himself. And wouldn't that be a nice gig? <laughs> Just look in the mirror and say, you know, are you sorry for your sins? Well, I exalt you, Father James, for your sins and stuff. I, the, I can't anoint myself. You know, all of the sacraments, I can't baptize myself. I mean, obviously, if I'm a priest, I'm already baptized. But the point being is that uh, ordained ministry is always meant as an act of service. And so it's always for the sake of somebody else. So I don't have the gifts I have in ordained ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit for myself, it's for others. And isn't that a great model of what Christ taught us? And that we're called to, to serve and not to be served, following mm-hmm. the example of him who, who did exactly that for us. Yeah, no, that's very good. That uh, reminds me, I, I had heard a Presbyterian pastor one time in a sermon, and he said he had gone to Europe to some kind of big conference. And he had a, a, a magazine from America with him when he went, and it was a pastoral magazine, but it was called Christian Leadership. And someone there at the convention that he was at said to him, you Americans and your leadership, it should say servanthood. Mm. And uh, he said, you know, that really hit home. And he said, so when I came back, I, I really started thinking, you know, as a leader, we're to serve people. Like the whole purpose of being a leader is to serve. And how do I make service more important than say, being seen as a leader or, you know, that kind of stuff. And isn't that the time of struggle, I mean, with our fallen, broken nature that we need the grace of Christ for us to really be able to say, yes, everything I have is not for myself. You know, everything I have really is for God and for others. Yeah. Well, um, let me ask you about another um, sort of defining thing for Catholicism, which is the idea of praying the rosary. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people have questions about um, just because they see the beads, but they don't really know much about what it is or what it accomplishes. It's interesting. I see a lot of beads on rearview mirrors, and I wonder, it's like, okay, 
that's wonderful. Are, are people actually praying it? And so, yes, the rosary, if we think about it at the heart of it, it is simply contemplating the mysteries of the life of Christ as presented in the Gospels. You have the infancy narrative where we focus on the different events of Christ's life, his birth, his presentation in the, tem in, in the temple, his being lost in the temple when he's 12 years old, or his public ministry, the luminous mysteries, you know, when he um, does the first miracle at the wedding feast at Cana, or the moment of the transfiguration, and then we have mysteries that contemplate about his passion, you know, the crowning of thorns, and carrying the cross, the death on the cross. We have also the glorious mysteries that focus on his resurrection, ascension, and him of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's really what the rosary invites us to is from our knowledge of scripture and from our knowledge of living the Catholic faith, we are then able to uh, meditate upon that. And the perfect person who meditated upon the life of Christ was the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, she was, it says in scripture, when the Magi came, you know, she, she pondered these things and kept them in her heart. And as a model of a Christian, that's what we're supposed to do is to contemplate and, 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 and really enter into the life of Christ so that we ourselves can be conform more fully to him. Now, for the practical purposes, how this is accomplished is we have certain prayers, but you think about it, the majority of the prayers that are said are prayers directed to God, mm -hmm. the Our Father, which of course we all know is the prayer our Lord gave us. We have a glory be prayer, which is a praise to the Trinity. And then in recent years, we've had what's called the Fatima prayer, which is really a prayer that our Lord save us from the fires of hell and lead all souls to heaven, especially those who most need thy mercy. And so, you know, those are prayers that we have. And then we have the Hail Mary prayer, which mm -hmm. is a prayer deeply rooted in the sacred scripture. The first part of the Hail Mary comes from Luke chapter one, the words of the Archangel Gabriel. And I know there's various translations of, of what Gabriel says, but but you know, basically that he says, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And then we have later on in the same chapter, she going to her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then the end of the prayer is simply an invocation to, to pray for us, just like I would go to anybody who I would consider holy, or maybe my pastor or my bishop, and say, hey, hey, can you pray for me? And so at the heart of it, though, is in a very simple way, no matter if you have a doctorate degree in theology or you are, you know, someone who is a, a grandmother with little to no education, that all of us have a way to be able to really contemplate the life of Christ. Because isn't that what heaven is all about? To really enter more deeper into contemplation and union with God. And so amidst our busy lives to just be able to have something very tangible that helps us and to get outside of ourselves, not to escape the world, but to bring Christ into our world and help us to be able to endure the difficult times and rejoice in the good times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think um, you sort of bring up here with that the idea of, uh, you know, even the Hail Mary. Um, sometimes I think there's confusion outside of the Catholic Church to whether or not Catholics are praying to saints or praying to Mary. Mm -hmm. And if I understand correctly, you're not really addressing your prayers to those people. You're, you're addressing them with your prayers for them to take those prayers to God. And the idea is that uh, in the same way you would ask you know, me to pray for you or someone else to pray for you, mm -hmm. um, you're asking saints who've gone before us to also intercede on your behalf 
before the Father. I can't say it better than, than you said it. The only thing I would add to that is whenever I do a baptism class and I teach the parents and the godparents, I always ask them, especially since they normally have little kids at that moment and they're probably waking up in the middle of the night, I said, have you ever woke up at two o'clock in the morning and asked yourself, you know, what is our Lord doing at this very moment in heaven? Well, the book of Hebrews answers that question, right? The letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, it says that Christ is interceding for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what he does as a priest. The priest is one who intercedes on behalf of his people to, to God. So whenever we pray here on earth for someone else, whenever we intercede, we're doing exactly the same thing that Christ is doing. So can we imagine that those who have gone before us who are united perfectly with God in heaven will be doing anything different than what our Lord is doing because we're all part of that same body. And so I think whenever we intercede, I mean, that's doing the exact thing that the Lord is doing. And, and that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And so, but yeah, no, your uh, description of understanding intercessory prayer goes right at the heart of it is being able to say, you know, hey, can you pray for me? And those who are united with God, you know, can be able, and they aren't distracted by the worries and the hustles of this life, and they can perfectly bring our petition to the Lord. We always think of, Gen of John chapter 2, the wedding feast of Cana, and what's very fascinating is this is the last words that Mary says in Scripture, is when they, she finds out the wedding guests have no wine, which is a big embarrassment for a Jewish couple. Mm -hmm. She goes to her son and, and, and intercedes for him and say they have no wine. And then her very last words are the servants are, do whatever he tells you. And so for us, whenever we ask somebody to pray for us, you know, especially when we think of the saints, they obviously are going to lead us closer to Jesus. Just like anybody here on earth, if we ask, if we've entrusted a prayer intention to somebody else, they are hopefully going to lead us to our Lord as well. Yeah, very good. And uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's the same, you know, in I think any Christian tradition where you say, you know, hey, we need to pray for this person over here and pray for their salvation and, you know, pray for this issue going on in their life or for God to intervene with what's happening. So, yeah, and, and then... Um, uh, you know, just yeah, just like with the wedding feast, you know, it's um, uh, you want to you want to put yourself under the authority of Christ and do whatever He is He has said and and take your take your request to Him because He's the one that has the power and ability to do all of that. And I don't know from from your experience, but I think one of the things that people in our time struggle with, and I imagine Christians throughout the world. Is, you, is to how do I lead in that prayer life? And can I trust in the power of prayer? Mm -hmm. I see so many examples where people come up and say, you know, I prayed and this is what this is what happened and everything. And to really trust, like the Lord says in your Father, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And do we see prayer as a way to get God to do our bidding? Obviously, there's intercessory prayer involved with that. Or is it more of how can we be conformed more fully with God and come to really know Him as Father. Mm -hmm. To trust that in the good times or the bad, that He's going to be with me. That whatever the issue is, you know, that issue is going to go away and there's probably going to be another issue that comes along. Or, or good times. We go from good times to good times and kind of the ups and downs like the Sea of Galilee. Mm -hmm. but, but I think the most important thing about prayer is that you know, 
that we have that relationship that we know um, that the Lord's always going with us. He, like Psalm 23 says, He's our good shepherd with His rod and His staff. Even in the dark valley, I don't fear any evil. I don't fear anything because He's at my side. And I think that is, when we talk about any form of prayer um, in the church, and that has to be at the end. So it's not about, hey, I went through the mechanism of saying these prayers because Jesus condemns that mm -hmm. from some of the leaders of his day and time. It's more of being able to enter into the, the room of our hearts and really let the Father you know, speak to us. And one of the things I always tell uh, people is in our prayer life, do we ever let God tell us that he loves us? Mm -hmm. Because the first thing he ever says to our Lord in the Gospels is at his baptism. He says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so if we are part of the body of Christ through baptism, then whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. And we really allow the Lord. And I think that's why I asked about prayer, to really, really enter in and just be amazed by how much mm -hmm. God loves us. Not because we've earned it or deserved it. It's just, it's just a pure gift. It's grace. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, what you bring up is also important, the idea of just listening to God in prayer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, oftentimes people from all denominations, I think, sort of give God their little laundry list of things they need, and they're like, okay, see ya, and uh, they say amen, and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's not a lot of additional time spent in contemplation and listening. And that's important. That is important. There's a great story about Abraham Lincoln. He was receiving delegation during the Civil War. And there was a uh, minister that came up and said that he was thankful that God was on our side. And the president said, I'm not at all concerned about that because I know God is always on the side of the just. He said, but my uh, constant fear and anxiety is to make sure that I and this nation are on the Lord's side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful distinction. Yeah, and to be able to so. say, you know, is, is what more important is that, oh yeah, God's doing what I want, or God's on my side, or am I on the side of the Lord? It's, uh, it's uh, you know, as Abraham Lincoln can always do with some of his sayings, you know, just being able to be very thought-provoking in that sense. Yeah. Well, um, there's another um, uh, thing that I saw the other day. It, was, it, was, it kind of made me think a little bit. Uh, I was listening to a... Um, a Catholic parishioner, and he said, I've got a question for Protestants, and that is, you guys put crosses on your, you know, in your services, in your sanctuary, you put them on your car, mm -hmm. you do all these things with crosses you wear around your neck, but you don't do the sign of the cross. Hmm. Why not? And I thought, well, that's a really good question. But then I thought, I wonder how many people that are not Catholics really even understand what the sign of the cross is. So I thought maybe you could uh, enlighten us on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, by the cross, we have won salvation. The cross is just a, a, such an important instrument. And so when we do the sign of the cross, it is a reminder. First of all, you know, when we make the sign of the cross, we always acknowledge the Trinity, you know, mm -hmm. the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So first of all, it can be just a simple prayer to Almighty God, but it's also a sense that we are covering ourselves with what the cross achieved which was that Christ, our Savior, died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And that's really got to be at the heart of any Christian preaching of the Christian message in general. Why am I excited to be Christian? Mm -hmm. It all comes down to this person, Jesus Christ, is God made man. He died and he rose again from the dead. 
you know, there's the uh, there's the uh, happenings in Athens with St. Paul, where he's trying to be you know, really smart and intelligent about you know his preaching, <laughs> and and it was kind of an utter failure. And he later wrote, I believe it's to the Corinthians, you know, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for us, we want to make that our boast. So whether we're saying meals before, uh, we're graced before meals or, or coming into the church and blessing ourselves with holy water or ending in prayer, we just want to be reminded of the cross, not because we want to focus on what happened on Good Friday, but we look at the whole package that Without Good Friday, we don't have Easter Sunday. And um, we want to rejoice in the fact that we have been saved by Christ who died on the cross. Yeah. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's certainly important to, uh, to think about what he accomplished on the cross and everything that we do. Uh, I was reading a book a couple of years ago now, but uh, the book was published uh, around 2010, I think. And it was on important issues in Catholic theology for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And it was a book where every chapter was written by a different theologian. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was most interesting is that almost every single person talked about the Lordship of Christ and how that needed to be a significant central theme in, uh, in what the Catholic Church is doing in the 21st century. And what you're saying, it's you know very much along those same veins that uh, uh, you know pointing to the central event, his death and resurrection. I mean, that's why he was incarnate. That's why he came. And uh, you know, it it is it's the central part of the Christian faith. I mean, that's what separates Christianity from really anything else is what he accomplished on the cross and with his resurrection. You know, no one has claimed. Um let me put this, let me maybe say it another way. Most of the major religions in the world have claimed that God has spoken to them, you know, that their founder is a prophet, uh, mm -hmm. that he sees a message from God. No major religion has ever said, our founder is God. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead proves that he's God, because without that, then he is just a good teacher. You know, he is a wise sage or a philosopher or, mm -hmm. or somebody that, yeah, he had good mores and moral practices in life. But with his resurrection, I mean, he, he proves that he is God because nobody has risen from the dead when he's opened the gate. So that makes everything that he says, you know, true. And I remember as a seminarian student, he once were given a lecture by Father Campola Mesa. Now, some people may, not know his name, but they may recognize who he is. He's the preacher of the papal household. So he always preaches at the Vatican on Good Friday. And one of the things I'll never forget, he said, you know, whenever you preach, make sure you preach the charisma. Make sure you are preaching the death and resurrection of our Lord. And I was thinking to myself, that's exactly what the first disciples did. Mm -hmm. They went out to the known world and they were in the backwaters of the Roman Empire and they were able to transform the known world at the time. Why? Because of the fact that they said, hey, we have this relationship with God and through Jesus Christ. And this is what he did for us and we want to share that with you. And that changed hearts. And I was like, well, if that's the case in the first century, and this is what you're indicating from the book that you just read, it's got to be the same thing for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. 
Um, let me ask you this. If someone was, say, interested in Catholicism, what would be, uh, in your mind, a good reason for people to consider um, becoming part of the Catholic Church? For me, I, again, the, the most important thing is to have that intentional and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, I believe all Christian denominations would say that. Mm -hmm. But for me, that's at the heart of it, and to be able to say, you know, how can I have a deeper intimacy with our Lord? And of course, for us, we believe that what is of, of, of most essential importance is what we call in Scripture the breaking of the bread, mm -hmm. which is the Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist. You know, we hear in Luke's Gospel that when our Lord rose from the dead, he had that walk with the two disciples of Emmaus, and he not only spoke the scripture to them, but they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And so the participation in the Sunday liturgy with the breaking of the bread, with the Eucharist, for us, we believe that it is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ present under the appearance of bread and wine. Mm -hmm. and so that is of, of most importance there. And then as we kind of talked about, just entering into that tradition of being able to have that security and safety amidst all the changes of this modern world, mm -hmm. being able to know that the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith will be proclaimed. You know, I, I always invite people to, to look in, that's why I love your podcast, of being able to look at all the different denominations, because I always tell the people, I say, don't believe uh, things because Father James tells you to believe them. Don't believe them because you're Catholic. You know, believe them because they're true. And we want to follow that which is true because we're all wired toward the truth. And as Christians, we know the truth is not just a bunch of principles. The truth is a person of Jesus Christ. And so for me, the invitation would, would be to be able to, to look in and to be able to say, you know, how can I have a deeper intimacy and relationship with our Lord, which all Christians would want. So I think we can be on that common path of truth and, and find out, you know, where is the way in which Christ has been able to fully be able to give himself to us and fully enter into his teachings and in his life? Yeah, very good. I think that uh, in a lot of traditions, uh, you have sort of the idea that you go to church on Sunday, and then throughout the week you kind of live your life, and hopefully while you're living your life throughout the week, you're being mindful of God's work in your life and his presence in your life. and you're hopefully spending time in prayer and other things of that nature. Uh, and then you come back to church the next Sunday and it sort of helps realign your thoughts again and then you go on. Um, I think that one of the things that I find to be very interesting about the Catholic tradition is that there's a lot more, I think, emphasis on daily practices that really are meant to help sort of align our thoughts with God's will. And uh, it's meant to sort of keep you daily mindful of who God is in a way that some denominations don't really do. Uh, and again, I don't think it's because they're trying to be negligent or anything like that. It's just, um, you know, different traditions do different things. Mm -hmm. And but, but one of the things I think is fascinating about the Catholic denomination is that uh, there's a lot of opportunity each day uh, with different traditions that exist within the Catholic tradition to help sort of keep you focused on God throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important, you know, I, the way I define worship is uh, obedience to God. I think that, you know, when we are 
properly being obedient to God, our lives become an act of worship. And ultimately, we should desire to live out our lives every day in worship to God. Uh, but uh, I think part of that for the Catholic Church is also Mass. Uh, and I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that for, uh, for a second, although you may have something else you wanted to say No, that's well. fine. And, but I think you're exactly right. I mean, St. Paul tells us pray constantly. Now, how do we do that? I mean, unless you're a monk or a nun or a hermit, I mean, how, how do Christians pray constantly? And so I think all the different aids that the church provides, we talked a little bit about the rosary, but there's also personal prayer and different forms of prayer that someone can enter in. Yeah, definitely. But but going back to what you were saying, yes, for us, the Mass is, is really, really at the centrality of our faith because the Eucharist is at the centrality of our faith. We believe that that is the real presence of, of Christ in, in sacramental form. And kind of going back to what I was saying about the road to Emmaus, I, I tell my congregation, I mean, just think about the fact that on Easter Sunday, again, Christ just rose from the dead. It's like, what's he going to do? You know, he, he gave the apostles authority to forgive sins. And earlier that day, he walks with these two disciples. And Cleopas, actually, there's a tradition that he's actually a distant relative of our Lord. Mm -hmm. So even he doesn't recognize. So the, first of all, the disciples shouldn't recognize our Lord. But somebody who also is blood relation should definitely recognize And they don't recognize him. Mm -hmm. And so... The liturgy, the Mass, as you, as you say, we not only offer on Sunday, but every day. Why? Because it allows us to, to be able to walk with the Lord along the uh, pilgrimage of our own life. That he is able to uh, proclaim himself through the scriptures. And then he is able to, to share his very self in the breaking of the bread. And, and how do you go to understand this? Because this term breaking the bread is found in Luke's gospel. It's also found in Acts of the Apostles, what the church is all about. For us as Catholics, we believe that going back to the Last Supper the night before he died, that we hear you know, Jesus takes bread, and he breaks it, and gives it to them and says, this is my body. He takes the chalice and says, this is my blood. And we have to remember, of course, that he's doing that within the context of the Passover meal. Well, what's the Passover meal? The Passover meal refers back to the book of Exodus where people were being free, the Israelites, from the slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt and were going to go to the promised land. And the last acts of God that allowed this to happen was that the angel of death was going to come down and kill all the firstborn sons in the land from the firstborn son of Pharaoh to the firstborn um, of, of, every, of every beast, except for those who lived in the houses who's had blood sprinkled on the doorpost, on the mm -hmm. wooden doorpost. And inside, of course, that blood came from a lamb that they preserved and they slaughtered the lamb. And it was a sacrifice. And so what we say, why Mass is so important to us, is it is able to participate in that one sacrifice that happened once for all on Calvary, because why is that important for Catholics? Because in the Old Testament, whenever there was a sacrifice, what did they do with the lamb afterwards? Mm -hmm. They consumed it. Yeah, there was a feast. Too. There was a feast. There was a feast that they had to consume, to consume that which was sacrificed. Well, 
St. John the Baptist in the Gospel says, Behold the Lamb of God. Revelation talks about the Paschal Lamb being Christ. And so what is happening in that liturgy, and this sustains us through our pilgrim way of life, just like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, is that we get to partake of him who was sacrificed and nourished. And so for us, that is why the liturgy is so important. I tell people all the time, you know, sometimes people say, well, I come to Mass on Sunday because I have to do that. If I don't do it, then, you know, it's a sin waiver. I'm like, okay, but what, I mean, we shouldn't do something because we have to do it. We're talking about our relationship, our covenant relationship with, with Christ. And so just like we would treasure any relationship, human relationship among ourselves, and we don't do things out of obligation, but out of pure joy. It's the same thing when we come to the liturgy. And the last thing that I will note is what's very fascinating is that the first time we ever hear the words of Christ in sacred scripture in terms of chronologically, because the Gospels, as you know, were written after the letter of, uh, of Paul that we have now. And Paul talks about how he receives from the Lord what he has handed on, the tradition, to, to his listeners. And he talks about how Christ instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper. And those are the first words that we have of Christ listed down in the New Testament in terms of the oldest of, of the manuscripts there. But then the other interesting thing I always like to note is we refer to the New Testament. Uh, we have the Old Testament. Another word for testament is covenants. And, and then we are able to see, okay, all the different covenants from the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Moses, with David, and he made all these covenants. And all these, of course, foreshadow the New Testament because Christ is the fulfillment. But when's the only time that we hear the term New Testament, New Covenant? It's when Christ says, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. And so why do we treasure the Mass, whether every Sunday or if we can every single day? Because that is participation in this new and everlasting covenant. And the covenant, as we know for God, is super, super important in terms of building a relationship with His people and granting salvation and letting them know that you are my people and I will be your God. Yeah, and the covenant surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection is the last covenant. You know, it's the final thing. There's no other need for a new covenant between God and man. We now have in the person of Christ everything we need to have a proper relationship with God and a permanent relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at the old covenant, um, you know, I mean, there are covenants about, you know, not flooding the earth or, you know, making Abraham's descendants, you know, you know so numerous, which of course is eventually. Uh, fulfilled in the person of Christ. Yeah. But um, and I'm glad we don't have some of those old covenants because some of the prescriptions <laughs> there can be very heavy. Very much so. Yeah. And then Christ is, you know, taking that away with this new and everlasting covenant, not taking away in terms of removing, but taking away in terms of fulfilling. Right. And I think that's it. With the old covenants, you have the animal sacrifices, and the animals are a temporary covering for sin, but you've got to keep sacrificing more animals. And I've argued that the reason for that is because animals aren't made in God's image. Mm -hmm. Humans are. Mm -hmm. But when Christ became incarnate, he was fully man, fully God. He took humanity and added it to his deity. Mm -hmm. And because of that, 
just like the lamb was without blemish in the Old Testament, he's without blemish in the New Testament and is a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And because he is bearing God's image and is in fact God, there's no need for any additional sacrifices after him. Yeah, it is a, it is a sacrifice made once for all. And what a blessing that is, you know, to be able to, to think. And, and that should just lead, and that's where we get the term Eucharist from. It's a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever we should come before the Lord, I mean, how can we not, even if we have the most difficult circumstances going on in our life, how can we not but just be grateful for everything the Lord has done? Mm-hmm. Not because of not because of anything I've done, it's because of everything of who he is. You know, yeah. I tell everybody, you know, my spiritual director reminds me, you know, there is but one God, James, and today you're not him. <laughs> and thank God for that. I mean, this world would be totally messed up if, if any one of us were God other than God. And he has a great plan, you know, to, to, to save us. As we hear, you know, Paul tell Timothy, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's, that's good news. It is indeed. So, and uh, I think that uh, as Christians, you know, we should also desire for all people to be saved. And we should desire for all people to have a relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as such, you know, we have a responsibility to tell people about Christ and uh, invite people to come with us to our churches and to uh, learn about Christ and to experience Christ. Um, in the Catholic tradition, is there uh, what, and, you know, of course, if you look back into the say, 1500s, 1600s, uh, there was a lot of, um, missionary efforts from the Catholic Church. Uh, but what are some of the Catholic Church's um, practices for evangelism today? You know, that is something that the Church has recognized as a great need. And that's something that is very ongoing. Here at our parish, one of the things that we're trying to do is to, to, to form small groups so that everything that doesn't happen out in, in your Protestant listeners may be like, hey, we got that down, but you know, but to be able to, because I think the most important thing in terms of evangelization, I think you would agree that a lot of times people don't come to Christ because they said, oh, I read this great book, or I read this church father, I heard this awesome lecture. Sometimes that happens and that's awesome and good, but a lot of times it's just uh, by the example of others. So I, I think what the church has recognized is the more that we can build up our own people and empower them to be able to live their lives, not in a way of proselytizing, but just authentically living their lives yeah. and be able to say, you know, the reason why I can be joyful, even in the most sorrowful times, is because my relationship with Christ, that impacts things. So mm-hmm. I think that's the real key to evangelization that we've noticed and that the church has always seen, the first missionaries. I mean, they did not go and first say, hey, you know, this is what St. Paul says, and here's the definition of faith and salvation. They first came to, to build up the natural virtues and to help in the natural necessities of the people that they were serving. And then from that, therefore, they were able to build a trust and then to be able to share faith. Mm-hmm. There's a great story of a World War II veteran um, who, um, I, I should actually say, not a veteran because he, he uh, yeah, sorry, he is a veteran. And he shared a cell with a Japanese man who was considered a traitor to his own country. This was in the Pacific Theater. And the man, the 
the American would do everything to care for this Japanese man who was regularly tortured mm -hmm. um, because he was considered a, a traitor to his country. And uh, he would give him some of his own food, tend to some of his own wounds as best as he could in that awful condition that they were in. And right before the Japanese man died, because he came back one day and the, and the American knew there was nothing else he could do for him. Um, the American said, I can't do anything else for you, but I do want to tell you about um, someone so that you don't have to be afraid as you pass from the life of this world to the next. And he said that he was a Christian who told him about Jesus. And you know what that Japanese man said? The Japanese man said, if Jesus Christ is anything like you, then I can't wait to meet him. I mean, that's evangelization mm -hmm. at that moment. And um, that's a touching story. And, and as I tell people, I mean, that's a great examination of conscience. Yes, we have the Ten Commandments, which are God's gift to us that we can live by. Yes, we have the uh, moral order that we need to live and everything. But at the end of the day, for us as Christians, can people say, if Jesus Christ is anything like you, then I can't wait to meet him. And what I think is a great challenge for Christians throughout every denomination is to be able to witness that. Mm -hmm. Because I, so often people may not be able to see Christ through us um, because, you know, we're broken individuals, but the more we can let God's grace shine through us and be proud of that, you know, as St. Paul says, I no longer live my own life, but Christ lives inside of me. Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to, to evangelize. So just touching hearts one person at a time. Think of Mother Teresa, you know, how she was able to transform her area of Calcutta, but also the world with her great love. And she just did it very simply, just mm -hmm. doing little things with, with great love and that changed it all. So I hope that answers your yeah. question. No, it does, it definitely does. I think that's a, it's a very important aspect of uh, sharing our faith as well, because um, you know there are those who think the best way to get someone into heaven is to argue them into it. <laughs> it's like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> Most people, don't as it turns out, you know, most people don't turn to Jesus because you've been trying to beat them in a debate, you know. Yeah. Um, but when people see you living your faith and see how your faith has shaped who you are and changed you, and see that you're genuine in your faith, then people say, you know, there's something to that, and, and that's really one of the things I think that most frequently helps draw people in. I believe so. In fact, there's a document that came out in the 70s in the church that said, modern man listens more attentively to witnesses rather than to teachers. And mm -hmm. they listen to teachers just because they're witnesses. And, and so I think that is the great uh, opportunity. I think there's an incredible opportunity for evangelization. I think especially with some of the things going on in our modern culture and world, uh, as I tell people, it's because we've lost the sense of God. I mean, think mm -hmm. about it. Throughout most of human history, you know, there has been a belief in, in God, mm -hmm. whether it's the Judeo-Christian God, you know, the true God, or whether it's the pagan religions who say, well, okay, well, maybe the sun is a God and you know, all of these things, but there's that human, natural human hunger heart for the connection with the divine. And thankfully, mm -hmm. God is one who reveals himself to us, and he reveals himself to the chosen people in the forms of time he reveals and very, his very self to us in the person of Christ. And so I, I think people have a great hunger and need for for just the basic uh, reality that, that God exists mm -hmm. and that he loves me. And 
And that's why I love wearing my collar when I go around. You know, I tell people I need to wear the collar less at the parish than around in the uh, in the general area. Why? Because I want people to have a positive thought of God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that makes my day. If someone can come away from a conversation or a liturgy or they just even see, and they, mm-hmm. can, they can hopefully have a positive thought about God. Because, because 10,000 years from now, the most important thing in our lives for everybody, whether you are a Christian or not, is whether or not we're fully united with God through Christ Jesus. And so with that in mind, you know, there's just a great opportunity to be able to plant the seeds and to trust that, that God will do the rest. Yeah, and I think it's important to trust that God's in control and that he will do the rest. You know, it's not our job to save someone, mm-hmm. but it is our calling to be a light and to be a witness. One thing I always say is we've got to be like St. John the Baptist, you know. Hey, there's the Lamb of God, you know. Uh, or we can be like Philip. I always said that... Uh, Philip always seems to be the hospitality committee of the apostles. You know, he's always like, hey, do we have enough food or, you know. But there's that one, there's that one uh, saying in John's Gospel where they come up to Philip and they say, sir, we want to see Jesus. And isn't that beautiful if people can be able to, to come to us and say, sir, ma'am, we want to see Jesus. And I think that's, uh, that's the perfect goal of disciple. We're just a conduit to be able to, to point to the Lord. You have the stained glass image in here. And that we can be kind of a stained glass where the light is able to reflect through us mm-hmm. and, and and people can be drawn to the light, not to us. Yes, very much so. Well, Father James, thank you so much for your time today for this conversation. Uh, I think this has been very helpful and I hope that it uh, will clear up some maybe confusion that some may have about the Catholic Church. Uh, I also think it will... Um, hopefully open some people's eyes to some of the teachings and some of the important aspects of the Catholic Church. And uh, so I think this has been been very good and educational. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Well, anytime. You're most welcome. And thank you for your podcast and the good work that you're doing with that and other areas of your life. It's it's great to sit down with a fellow Christian and just be able to um, discuss our love of Christ. Yeah, yes, indeed. And uh, for all those of you guys listening at home, thank you so much, and we'll see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.